friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. <laughs> Hi everyone, Bob Sutton here, and welcome to our bonus episode. The journey that I've been on, and now you've been on, to understand organizational friction, what causes it, uh, how you stop bad friction, and when friction is good. Well, that started when my co-conspirator, Huggy Rao, and I published a book called Scaling Up Excellence. And in the process of uh, talking about the book with um, other people, visiting companies and so on, we started getting interested in all the complaints and stories we heard about how difficult it was to do simple things. Thus began what we call the Friction Project, which is sort of a learning adventure, and the Friction Podcast is part of that adventure. Huggy has helped me with this journey of collective sense-making into organizational friction, and he's been with me every step of the way. He was the obvious choice for our first guest of the podcast, and as such, we thought it would be great to bring him on stage at our Friction Live event to give his final thoughts on radical candor as the final, final tangent. One thing about academics is, uh, well, there's a reason they call us professors. We, we profess or we talk for a living. And Huggy, um, God love him, he's just a classic academic. And so when we invited him on stage to give one or two minutes of comments, well, he turned into a real academic and he said so much and it was such good stuff that we decided to make it kind of a bonus episode. So that's what you're getting today. Huggy Rao talking about, well, everything from the Greek etymology of the word candor to um, why his wife calls him the CFO. So if you haven't listened to our final episode with Kim Scott and you aren't familiar with Kim Scott's management philosophy on radical candor, go back and listen to the episode just before this. Otherwise, this one is not going to make too much sense. And now my co-conspirator, Huggy Rao. Uh, this is a conversation about candor. Uh, I should begin with a confession. Uh, it's uh, very apropos. Uh, when I read the book, I sadly came up with the realization that I seem to be spending a lot of time on the ruinous empathy part and occasionally the obnoxious aggression and uh, also manipulative insincerity. Uh, <laughs> So in that sense, it was kind of disheartening. But on the other hand, as I sort of read through the book and indeed this conversation, the question that kind of came through to my mind is, what are the doorways from one zone to another? What is it that allows you to get from manipulative insincerity, for example, to radical candor? And here, I must confess, the person who's taught me a lot is my wife, um, she's much wiser than I am. Uh, let me say that right at uh, the outset. And uh, we sort of live in, you know, one of these like housing subdivisions where they constantly meet together. It's a pain in the ass. You got to go to these meetings. And I was clearly in the manipulative insincerity zone. So I was trying to con her to go attend the thing and, of course, get out of going there myself. So I told her, you really are the CEO of the house. You should go there. Uh, 
And she said, and what are you? Thinking I was reasonably good at math and so on, I said, I'm the CFO. I can do calculations a little quicker than you. So she looks at me and says, CFO? And I was about to explain, of course, what a CFO was. And then it dawned on me, obviously, she knew what a CFO was. CFO, she looked at me, said, does that mean chief fuck off? (laughs) And I thought to myself, and that was when I realized, shit, I'm from manipulative insincerity into radical candor. And (laughs) the reason I sort of make that confession is, it seems to me that candor also needs to have wonder and insight. It's not sort of telling me like I'm doing badly or this or that or whatever. It's most of the time you're like a prick or whatever. And somebody needs to tell that to you in a way. You say, ah. And then you say, aha. And then you say, ha, ha, ha. You start laughing. (laughs) And so it seems to me that's really the thing of candor. How do you get people to say, ah, aha, and then ha, ha. So I, 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 I sort of mention that as something for all of us to think about because in organizations, where do we find candor? Sadly, not in any conversation. Candor often takes the form of comedy, carnivals. Candor is always subterranean. In fact, there's a beautiful book called Hidden Transcripts by an American political scientist and sociologist called James Scott where he talks about how People without power communicate to those who do. How do they do that? They're not filling a survey. They're making fun of the idiocy of the top, typically. So that's sort of one thing I thought I should actually kind of begin with. We really need to understand laughter, wonder, insight. There's no question that candor, of course, uh, is a, reduces friction. Where is Melissa Valentine? Yeah, there's Melissa here, and she's done a wonderful study where they showed that more complaints that you actually have, the higher the performance of these medical teams, if I recollect rightly. So complaints obviously are an input into performance. That means candor kind of matters. It turns out that being candid, not being candid means you're keeping a secret, and that means it's burdensome. There's actually a lot of research that shows that the more secrets you carry, the more burdened you feel. You use words like heavy and burden and so on and so forth. There's also interesting work that shows candor can be primed. If I get you to do a word jumble task where I get you to spell honesty, the odds are you're going to make more alcohol-related, dare I say, offenses that you've committed in the past. So there are ways to prime all of this. But for me, what I really liked about Kim's talk and indeed the book was it would be a disservice to think that the book only focuses on the interpersonal. To me, it really has to do with the sociological. That's really my interest. And when I look at her matrix, I don't think of these as styles. I was asking myself, are there rooms in an organization? Or are there various levels in the building that's an organization? And if we really go back to the history of the word candor or the etymology, I went to Jesuit school in India. So candor, of course, originally meant whiteness. It meant purity. In the 18th century, it turned to frankness. Okay, so, but the interesting thing was if you go to the Greeks, the Greeks were very, very concerned about candor. Candor to them was the bedrock of democracy. Everybody had the right to speak, and democracy thrived on candor. 
But the irony was, candor also was the doorway to elitism. Not everybody was being good at being radically candid. That's why you have only very few pericles and the others. So there's that tension. The other thing about candor is, candor works when the consequences of being candid are severe. So, you know, you could lose your life, you've got to be very careful. When the costs are too low, you can actually have a lot of insincerity masquerading as candor. This is something that actually worried the Greeks a lot. They couldn't tell what's good candor, what's bad candor. And what did Socrates say? Well, we can't figure this out. The only way to do is we've got to get a philosopher king to actually rule. It seems to me that what Kim is suggesting is, and indeed this discussion amongst all of us is suggesting is, We've lived in an organization where we have an etiquette that actually, an etiquette that seeks to take emotion out, that seeks to routinize. I think what Kim is asking is, and all of us indeed ought to work for is, how do we create an etiquette where being truthful, being upfront is actually something that's rewarded and not penalized? Because if we don't do that, what do we do? we're all going to be guilty of sampling bias. You listen to what is said, you don't sample what is unsaid, and that's the reason you make many, many mistakes. Her book, of course, is wonderfully timely, given the dearth of candor in our life uh, these days. Bob told me not to say any more about that. So I also got... <laughs> that's really what we need to think. So as I close, think of candor, laughter, wonder, interpersonally for each of us, but think of how can we look at our own organizations? How big is our room of manipulative insincerity? How big is the room of ruinous empathy? How small is the room of radical candor? And tragically, is that radical candor underground? How do we make that above ground? That's really the challenge for all of us. If we do that, we reduce friction, we get speed, organizations go faster and arguably farther. Thank you very much. Well, that's it, everybody. Friction is a wrap. What did you think? Did you learn anything? I know I did. It was a great chance just to sit down and talk with people who I would interview anyway and then invite a bunch of friends, both at Stanford and those of you out in the audience, to kind of join me in the conversation. So it was great fun and a neat way to learn. So what do you think? Do you like this? Should we do another season on organizational friction? Or should I move on to something else? I'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know by leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or tweet us at eCorner on Twitter, or if social media isn't your thing, reach out to us via email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. One more time, that's stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. This has been the Friction Podcast. Friction Podcast.